While the WE organization is closing its Canadian operations, but opposition members are saying the investigation into WE and the government's responsibilities will continue. A new book by Bob Woodward contains explosive revelations that U.S. President Donald Trump intentionally misled the public on COVID-19. We'll get reaction to that. And one of the vaccines that has been in phase three clinical trials has been put on hold after a patient suffered some adverse effects. Details coming up on the program. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The WE organization, of course, uh, we found out yesterday, is closing its Canadian operations. Uh, the opposition parties in Ottawa argue that by closing down the uh, Canadian operation uh, isn't going to make the problem go away. And it really, it, in their mind anyway, underscores the lack of due diligence that was done, or I suppose in one case not done, by the federal government before they handle the programs over and a considerable amount of money uh, to we. Uh, and that's probably going to continue over the next little while. It's a rather complicated situation and uh, a very troubling situation for the government. Uh, Global News' Jason Chapman gives us an outline as to what's happening. The brothers are blaming the COVID-19 pandemic as one of the reasons for the closure. The other reason? The controversy surrounding the Liberal government's plans to have the youth organization run a multi-million dollar student volunteer program. Craig and Mark Kielberger are planning to leave the organization once the transition to a new board of governors is complete. The youth organization has lost many of its corporate sponsors over the past few months, which the Kielbergers say has left it in dire financial straits. We plans to lay off all of its Canadian staff in the coming months and sell all of its property in Canada. An endowment fund will be created to support several overseas projects. Jason Chapman, Global News. So that's, that's the outline, and I'm sure most of us understand a lot of the background as to what happened here. This was a, a rollout of a government program that was supposed to be helping, uh, well, during the COVID-19 crisis, as we know. And there was a concern about uh, youth unemployment and the staggering numbers that uh, we're facing as a result of that. And COVID was certainly a factor, but there were other things that were going on at the same time. So uh, as they made that announcement, uh, and this was all part of those daily briefings that the prime minister gave us uh, some months ago, uh, they talked about this plan that was supposed to help youth employment. And they figured, well, we need somebody to be able to manage this program. And uh, all of a sudden, they pointed to the WE organization. Uh, we know in hindsight now that, uh, that the Trudeau family, and for that matter, the then finance, finance minister, Bill Morneau, had strong ties to the WE organization, uh, which begged the question, why were they even involved in the decision? But So it gets murkier and murkier and murkier, and I'm not so sure that uh, the decision by WE to simply say we're pulling out of Canadian operations is going to change anything. I want to bring Andrew Russell into the conversation. Andrew, of course, is a national online journalist with Global News. And uh, Andrew, first of all, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thank you for having me. This is a, this is an ongoing problem, and we we, we have been reassured. Uh, and in your reporting, I know you've talked about this too, uh, by the opposition parties that uh, you know even when they get back to work on the twenty first, when when Parliament resumes, uh, they're not going to let go of this, are they? Uh, no, they're they're not. And we heard from we've already heard from uh, Charlie Angus, uh, the NDP MP, who's been. Um, a major part of the finance committee looking into this, and he and the opposition, uh, the conservative opposition as well, have been, uh, uh, from the statements they've made so far, they've been uh, continuously saying uh, the Liberals and We Charity need to hand over um, all the unredacted uh, documents, and, and, and there's still some concern that, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with the committees when they come back on the 23rd. Well, because they continue to probe on this, and, and I, I, I don't know what's going on in the heads of the Kalebergers, and or for that matter, for the people in the government that were involved in this. Uh, 
but you know we've seen other crises and other fiascos come and go uh, snc lavalin comes to mind and a couple of others of course and and they seem to have faded away in the public consciousnesses this this one though andrew doesn't seem to be going anywhere people seem to be still upset about not just that this happened but the way in which it happened well that's an that's an interesting question i mean i think it really depends on you know who you are as a canadian uh, we've seen from polls that uh, there was a slight uh, hit to the Trudeau brand, but um, largely speaking, I, I'm, I'm not sure this is really registered um, that strongly in the minds of voters. Uh, just looking from reaction online, you can see that you know liberal supporters have, have still you know are staying with uh, the Trudeau government. Um, I'm just not sure how much of an effect, and the opposition is going to you know continue to pound on this as they come back in uh, September. Uh, at the end of September here, and uh, it, they're going to continue on it. But there is a question of how much, uh, especially with a, a you know, a, a looming election, are we going to, you know, have a call at, at the end of the month here? Um, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Well, especially, uh, like you say, history teaches us uh, uh, some lessons here. I mean, the opposition's job is to oppose, and they're certainly going to, you know, like a dog to a bone, going to continue after this. But uh, just, you know, going back to the last federal election and, and the, the lead-up to that, as you recall, Andrew, and I know that you covered this extensively, uh, Andrew Scheer and the conservatives especially thought that the, the SNC-Lavalin thing was, was going to be a millstone around the government's neck. But, uh, you know, the voters basically said, no big deal. I, we didn't think it was right, but it's no big deal. I'm not so sure that that's going to be the same attitude here, though. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's a good point, and it, it, it's still, it's, you know, there's still a, a lot that could come out here. Um, there's still some questions um, about sort of, you know, what the Kilbergers um, said at the time during the uh, during their um, appearance before the Finance Committee and, and the story put forward by the Liberals. Uh, if we go back to when they testified back in the summer, um, they said that we charity was in no financial trouble. And we know that they were in significant financial trouble. And this contract was um, really, really essential to the continuation of their operations uh, here in Canada. So there is that. Uh, I think the opposition will lash onto that. And we're already seeing uh, today that there's going to be uh, more calls to continue the investigation into this uh, issue. And, and it's it's going to be easier for the opposition parties, of course, than it was, uh, for instance, even with the, the SNC-Lavalin thing, because it's a minority government. And, uh, the, you know, the composition of those committees that are investigating, and I think there's four of them now, isn't there? Uh, parliamentary committees that in one way, shape, or form are going to be looking into this situation. Uh, but they're dominated by opposition members. So, uh, you know, if they want to continue this, they're going to do it. Oh, absolutely. This is, uh, this is going to continue... Um, the opposition is is definitely not going to uh, let go of this, and you can already see there's going to be some uh, statements and press conferences uh, uh, today um, uh, to that effect. The the question though, and I'm glad you touched on this because we've talked about this with uh, Mercedes Stevenson, of course, Global News, Ottawa bureau chief, and David Aiken up in the, the Capitol as well, is. Uh, when you're there all the time and you're covering this all the time and you spend a good deal of your time up on Parliament Hill, uh, you t- could possibly lose sight of how this is playing in the rest of the country. Uh, the opposition parties want to make sure that, that this is still going to be out there, and, and certainly there's enough reporting on this right now that people are certainly aware of what's going on. But what, what's your sense in this, Andrew? How, how's this playing in Estevan and in, in Truro, Nova Scotia, as opposed to on Parliament Hill? Well, that's that's a great question. Um, I myself am currently based in uh, in Toronto. Uh, I mean, this is where 
We Charity uh, is headquartered yep. in. There is, you know, it, it did play out. It was a huge story here. I think for um, a lot of people in the political and media sphere, it continues to be uh, a massive story. And especially as a question of, you know, how uh, the prime minister in the finance committee, uh, the finance minister, uh, how did they make this mistake of failing to recuse themselves and dragging the party into this just absolute, um, uh, just a, another massive scandal? So there's some real questions there in terms of the decision making, but it, it just in terms of the average voter, it's it's just it's going to be. I think it's going to be difficult, as you said, to make that connection to people you know in other parts of the country where it just might not be. Ring and and their association with We Charity is probably you know just you know kids in schools going to the We Day events and it's it's it's, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be it's the longer this goes on, it's going to be a challenge for the conservatives to make this as uh, as big of a deal in the minds of voters as it is for uh, people in the uh, Ottawa sphere. Well, that's exactly it, because I don't know that people pay a whole lot of attention to this. I mean, if you don't like the liberals, you're going to grab onto this and, and, and you know, and ride the boat just as the opposition parties are doing. But the thing that always rankled me and the thing that I've talked about a, a considerable amount of time on this program over the last little while was that point that you just made. It wasn't so much that there was an association with we, because that happens. And let's face it, I think, you know, you found this out with your reporting, too. Canadians don't have a very high opinion of politicians to begin with. So when we hear about, you know, ties and, and possible, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink sort of thing, they say, yeah, so what else is new? They all do that. Uh, but the fact that these guys didn't recuse themselves, specifically the prime minister and the, the then finance minister, Bill Morneau, uh, they knew that they had ties, and they knew that uh, there those those ties were going to be acknowledged. Why didn't they just say, oh, we're not going to vote on this? I mean, it's, you know, if they wanted to, it was going to pass anyway. It's a majority government at the time, and they were going to do this. They, they knew that. Uh, but for them to simply say, well, you know, let's just do this. I mean, you know, who, who cares if we get caught? Uh, that's That's... That's flagrantly just kind of, you know, thumbing your nose at, at, at the Canadian public. And that, I think, is the thing that's probably going to bother people more than anything else. Oh, absolutely. And there is two, you know, ethics investigations um, going, going on currently. Uh, we're going to get the results of those in the coming months. And that is going to be, um, that's going to be again, another significant uh, hit to the uh, Trudeau government. Um, we know the finance minister has... Um, resigned over over this and other tensions with the prime minister um i think it's so it's just you know when bill morneau again testified back in july and he uh revealed that he had just suddenly repaid um forty one thousand dollars for two trips that were taken in 2017 that were paid for by we charity i think that kind of thing just rubs canadians the wrong way that is a you know it would be a year's salary for some people and he just you know happened to have forgotten to repay this money so i think that kind of stuff if the opposition uh continues to go that angle i think that's going to uh that could resonate with voters but again this is uh it's been i think we're on month three or four of this now and it's just uh, it, it keeps on going so I'm, I'm not sure how much life it's going to have left for the conservatives but i know or for the opposition but i know uh again just with the coming um uh, investigations by the ethics commissioner uh there could be more there's definitely going to be more uh to come on this interesting the, the perspective that we're seeing on this too because uh, you know we'll talk about the two other opposition parties essentially you know, not so much the green party because they're kind of finding their identity i guess now with their new uh, leader trying to get a new leader anyway but aaron o'toole a new conservative leader uh basically has told us over the last couple of days that uh, he doesn't think this is worth calling an election in other words he doesn't want to bring down the government on this issue uh 
Uh, I get the same sense from some of the comments from Jagmeet Singh. He's looking at this as an opportunity. You know, the liberals are down and out. It's about time maybe they sat down and started adopting some of the policies we've talked about, like, you know, EI reform and daycare and things of that nature. And that, and that may actually be in the throne speech. Uh, it, we'll find that out, I guess, in just, just a couple of days. But I, I don't sense that people like O'Toole and others uh, see blood in the water here. I mean, some of the, the people on those committees, Pierre Polverve and others, uh, are going to go after this because that's, that's what they're doing. That's, that's the nature of their jobs. But I don't get the sense that they're saying, okay, this is what's going to happen. Uh, in other words, I don't think O'Toole, and for that matter, Jagmeet Singh, want to fight an election on this issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, just in the interviews that uh, uh, Mr. O'Toole has done, uh, including with Global News, um, after he was, you know, became the party leader, he's uh, basically said he has no appetite for an election. It's not one of his priorities. Um, it doesn't mean he's not ready to fight one. And we've heard from the NDP, and we just know from uh, their financial position, I don't think they're in a position where they're going to want to call or uh, fight an election. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. I, I really don't think there's an appetite for an election. It doesn't mean that they're not ready to fight one, but it just I don't know. I, I think you're right. I, I'm not sure if they're ready to call an election right now. Okay, do some crystal balling for me here, Andrew. Based on, on your reporting and, and the people you've talked to over the last little while, uh, Aaron O'Toole may not want to call an election on this. Jagmeet Singh certainly doesn't. But with Justin Trudeau, I, I mean, this is a minority government, and the, the, you know, there's a there's a, a game that every minority government plays is okay. How long can we do this before, uh, you know, our time runs out, and do I jump before that happens so I can try to get a, a majority government? Uh, you know, they're they're not riding really high in the polls these days. I think the last one we saw. Uh, that uh, was reported on Global News over the weekend, uh, this, is that essentially they're tied with the Conservatives right now. But there's still rumors in Ottawa that I'm hearing, and I'm sure you have too, that the Liberals may just decide to call a snap election anyway. Yeah, it's it's, it's something that we're going to have to watch for. But um, again, we're seeing some polls. I'm just not sure if the Canadian public in the middle of a pandemic is going to look very kindly on a party that calls an election. Um at, at the moment, but it's 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 definitely something that we could uh, you know that's something that everyone in Ottawa is watching for, and it's going to be very interesting to see what is in that speech, what is in the throne speech next week, um, or sorry, on the twenty third when uh, when the House of Commons resumes. Yeah, exactly, and and you have points well taken. I mean, you know, if if we get thrown into an election uh, almost a year to the day after the last one, I think a lot of people are going to say, look, we don't need this. You know, I'm worried about my kids going back to school. I'm worried about a second wave of COVID. I really don't care about what's going on in Ottawa these days. Uh, but again, goes back to the point we made a couple of minutes ago in the conversation here about are they really in touch? I know that not all the MPs are there, but I mean the leaders are certainly there on a, on a regular basis. Uh, and I, I'm assuming that they're trying to get a read from the, the grassroots in, in all of those parties as to how the Canadian public are feeling about this right now. I don't think anybody wants to see an election right now. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. And just, you know, looking at what's going to be happening um, south of the border, uh, I just it, it just doesn't seem like right now is the best time for an election. And But it could give the Trudeau government a chance, to, you know, they could put what they want in this um upcoming drone speech and if you know the and they could try to force the opposition into calling an election and they would gladly fight it but i, I just don't think there seems to be much of an appetite for yeah, no, just <laughs> just because it makes common sense not to do it doesn't mean it's not going to happen i mean absolutely. we found that to be the case haven't we yeah absolutely time and time again uh always a pleasure andrew thanks so much for the time and uh, thanks for your great reporting on this hopefully uh, we'll talk again soon absolutely thank you for having me 
Take care. Andrew Russell is a national online journalist uh, with Global News, based in Toronto, but certainly covering the federal political scene as well. Uh, you can check him out on the Global News page, uh, on the web page, and get some of the information that's happening. Uh, it's it's a, an interesting time in Canadian politics right now because of that. Uh, not just be the we scandal, but I mean what's happening in Ottawa these days and, and just where the government is going to go and how much support they're going to get from opposition parties on some of this stuff. I mean, you know, Mr. O'Toole's made some pretty strong statements right now about his opposition to a number of the liberal policies, uh, but at the same time says it's not worthy of, of bringing the government down. But as Andrew just mentioned, uh, we'll find out after the throne speech exactly where the opposition parties are on this. Uh, of course, you know, the, the Bloc Québécois has already mentioned that they have no problem at all trying to bring the government down a force in the election, but I don't think that's a, a, a thought that's shared by a lot of other people in the country. Not yet, anyway. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Bob Woodward is a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author. Of course, uh, we first heard of Woodward in a big way back in the uh, the Watergate days uh, with the uh, expose that of course, he, uh, he wrote uh, along with others at the Washington Post, of course. Uh, but since then, of course, has published a number of different books uh, about different administrations. Uh, his book about Donald Trump from a couple of years ago called Fear was a, a, an immediate bestseller, of course, and painted a rather uh, bleak picture of exactly the way things were happening in the White House under the Trump administration. Uh, his follow-up is a book that actually will not be uh, readily available to the public until next week. Uh, but the Washington Post uh, got a, an advanced copy of it, and they've been uh, issuing snippets of it over the last little while. Interesting part about uh, this edition of the book, which is called Rage, by the way, uh, is that uh, Woodward backs it up with uh, audio. Uh, he retaped these these conversations that he had with Donald Trump, and uh, as a, a precursor, I guess, to giving us a, a sample of what's going to be happening in the book, uh, the Washington Post has also released a, a number of uh, segments of the uh, audio of the uh, interviews that uh, that Woodward did uh, with Donald Trump, uh, including some pretty damning evidence about his how he handled, or in some people's minds, mishandled the COVID-19 crisis, uh, especially the admission that he knew how severe it was, uh, but didn't tell the American public. Here's just a little bit of that conversation. To be honest with you, sure, I want you. To I be. wanted to. Uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. Uh, that was his rationalization for that, and uh, obviously a lot of people were shocked by that. Right? A couple of different perspectives if we want to get on this. Uh, let me bring uh, Laura Babcock into the conversation. Laura, of course, is the uh, president and CEO of the Power Group uh, organization. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program, Laura. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Bill. Your reaction, uh, th- th- this was a bombshell that we heard first. We knew the book was coming out at some point, but uh, uh, the-, the stark revelations and the audio that accompanies uh, the-, the snippets that we're hearing from the book are, are well, overwhelming to an awful lot of people. Yeah, and you haven't gotten to them yet, but there's also stuff in there, of course, about revealing new military wares that he shouldn't have, uh, comments that we've heard from the generals about just how unfit he was. Uh, there's there's a lot in those tapes, and I would suspect that we haven't even heard much of it yet. We still have Bob Woodward going on 60 Minutes this weekend. You have to assume that they're going to have more audio then, and this will continue to, to roll out uh, 18 interviews is a whole lot of tape and i think what we're many of us the initial bombshell to use your words but i don't think that that's overused in this context i know sometimes that can be you know something that we apply to everything uh but this really is massive because you have him in his own voice very carefully detailing to bob woodward uh, a, a journalist who cannot be assailed his record is just too good 
And I think that's why Trump wanted to do the interviews, because he probably felt this sense of great pride that Woodward wanted to do a book on him and wanted to speak to him in this book. And so he probably felt that he could charm Woodward. And so you hear him very carefully describe uh, just how much he knew about the virus early on, including, you know, how delicate and dangerous a delicate a situation was and how dangerous it was and the fact that it was passed by air and the fact that young people uh, could get infected by stuff that was counter to what he was putting out there when he was saying that it would just go away and that young people were pretty much impervious to it. And, and you know, when he started talking about hydrochloroquine and all these other things and, and shamed people for wearing masks when he knew that it was transmitted by breathing because he detailed it almost somberly to Wood, to uh, Woodward. So it's you, you listen to it and you think, there is a uh, a significant consciousness here of Trump. It's not, you know, I, I maybe had thought, uh, trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, that maybe he didn't listen to the experts fully and didn't fully understand what other world leaders seemed to understand because he just didn't pay attention. And, and so that's, and you know, his natural promotional rah, rah, rah. Uh, hype, which he did even when his casinos were going down. You know, he has always been someone to put a positive spin on things for a lot of different reasons. So I always thought, okay, it's just him not listening and doing his usual playbook. But when you hear him to Woodward, you, you get this really sense that it was very calculated and conscious. And and now, of course, the explanation is he didn't want people to panic, or he said to Woodward he didn't want people to panic, but we have seen him happily induce panic in America and a whole bunch of other ways that have benefited him, including talking about what's going to happen to the suburbs and the caravans that were coming up from Mexico and all kinds of other stuff. So uh, I, I don't think the panic excuse uh, resonates, but I think what's, what does resonate is just how much he knew and how much he deliberately decided to withhold and mislead the American public. And we'll never know how many lives could have been saved if he just simply told the truth or modeled the behavior that other world leaders modeled when they got the information that Trump got. Uh, I mean, it's, it is just historic and stunning. And right there in black and white, there, there's no disputing that he said and knew these things and when he said and knew them. What's fascinating to me, though, Laura, is I started to see some of these, and I'll be one of the first people next week to line up to get the book as well. Uh, first of all, why did he consent to do these 18 interviews? Didn't he read the last book that Woodward wrote uh, about him and about his, his administration? Clearly he didn't. I mean, that's a rhetorical question, I guess. Uh, but it speaks, I think, to, to Trump's huge ego, doesn't it, that, that he figures, I can handle Bob Woodward, I can handle Jonathan Swan, I can handle Chris Wallace. Uh, he gets eaten alive by these people all the time, and yet he keeps coming back. Well, I think the Woodward one is particularly important because, you know, Woodward was critical, as we know, Woodward and Bernstein with with bringing down Nixon, with bring, getting the, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, Watergate and all the rest of it. Uh, and we have Bernstein actually going on TV in the last 12 hours and saying that this is worse than the Nixon tapes. This is the smoking gun. This is the greatest potential presidential felony of all time. I mean, the the, the fact that the president had conscious knowledge of, of a risk to the public safety of Americans and not only chose not to act on that the way that other people with that knowledge did in their countries, uh, but he, in fact, decided that he was going to play it down and uh, and mislead the public. And, and you see that America has, what, 4.5% or something of the world's population and 25% of the coronavirus deaths, something, <laughs> something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is clear that he mishandled it. So I think his need to talk to Woodward 
was that Woodward was what, probably in, in Trump's mind the top investigative journalist, the presidential authority on, on in journalism, the guy. And if you could charm the guy, uh, how great would that be for you? And in fact, I don't think in the Woodward book, and I'm trying to remember it, it was a, a way back, but Trump wasn't really voiced in that book the way that he had the opportunity to be in these in these 18 interviews. So I, I do think it was ego. I think it was the need to try to charm the top dog, if you will, uh, in in American journalism, uh, and to create his own record, his own presidential history. And of course, it's foolish, because uh, Woodward is a great journalist, and, and he very carefully led Trump through all kinds of subject matter that Trump should not have commented on uh, if he was being at all strategic. But I, I really think it is about Woodward in particular, and trying to always impress the elites, which is something that we've seen in Donald Trump's history. I got about a minute left here. I, I, I mean, and again, you're you're absolutely right about Woodward's track record. I mean, the Watergate thing I think is self-evident. Uh, he wrote a book uh, about the uh, George W. Bush administration called Plan of Attack, which essentially uh, chronicled how Dick Cheney and, and Donald Rumsfeld concocted this whole uh, thing about you know weapons of mass destruction and everything like this. So Trump uh, or Bush rather was an unwilling participant in all of this stuff and really didn't know what was going on. Sadly, uh, but th- he gets to the bottom of issues, and and uh, I, I don't know Carl Bernstein's right about this. I don't know how this is going to resonate with the American public, but uh, it certainly does not paint him in a very good light. It doesn't, and the audio is damning. As I said, the tone of it, he was he was just so clearly en- engaged and aware of the risk to Americans, how the virus spread, and he knew what he should do, and he chose not to do it. Now, his rationalization about not causing a panic, obviously, uh, people, the American voters, are going to decide whether or not that rationale was sufficient for the misleading and the virus numbers that they have, the infection rates and the death rates in the United States. They're about to hit 200,000. The only time Time magazine has ever had a black border like the one it has this week is from after 9-11. And we're, of course, hitting a 9-11, a 9/11 anniversary tomorrow, Bill. And I think that Americans are going to maybe take a really hard look at uh, where they are as a country, both economically and in terms of their health, compared to where they could have been if their president had have been honest. Laura Babcock from Power Group, always a pleasure, Laura. I'm sure we'll talk again when the book comes out. There's a lot more to this to be had and to be digested, I guess, isn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks again. Take care. Laura Babcock from Power Group. Uh, let's get the uh, the read on what's happening down in the Beltway in Washington and D.C. about this. Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News uh, in Washington. Uh, Reggie, thank you so much for the time. Uh, first question, I guess, is the obvious one. Uh, what's the reaction in Washington to this book? Well, I mean, look, the reaction uh, that's in Washington is the same as the reaction uh, that is kind of happening in and around the country in that there is anger that the president was holding on to vital information about this virus way earlier uh, on uh, in in this crisis back in early February when he was making these initial comments to Bob Woodward. Uh, There's anger from within the Democratic Party. There's anger kind of within the, the average public who says, a lot of the lives that have been lost over the last six or seven months, uh, those numbers could have been drastically reduced if the president had simply just come forward. Reggie, where are the Republican voices? I mean, we heard Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and and the usual Democratic critics about this, about uh, Trump's uh, action or inaction, as the case might be. But a lot of Republicans, uh, both governors, uh, senators, and and, and representatives, of course, congressmen, uh, stood by this guy. They stood behind Trump, and they stood behind everything he said. I mean, the the curtain has come down right now. There's got to be, I think, first of all, some embarrassment, but probably an awful lot of anger among some Republicans, too. 
Yeah, I mean, look, Republicans right now are racing to either rewrite what the president said or to simply just gloss over the comments from the president. There was a Republican lunch in Washington yesterday, uh, and from what we understand, the issue was simply just not brought up. Uh, and it's not surprising. Anytime the president has found himself in any kind of uh, kind of communication crisis, you often see Republicans simply walk by the microphones and avoid the camera so they don't have to go on the record and publicly talk about the president when they can then go and do it kind of behind closed doors and air their grievances in that way. The problem here is that we're so close to an election right now, the Republicans that don't come and speak up, particularly those that might be vulnerable in the upcoming election, this really could come back to haunt them. Well, and you've reported on that in the past, obviously, when there's an embarrassing situation. Uh, all too often you'll see congressmen and, and, and senators walking past the media like yourselves. Uh, they have the microphones ready, and they've got this uh, this false phone call on their cell phone, of course, and they can't pay attention, and they're in a hurry. Uh, and I'm sure that's happening, but they can't run away from this uh, because of the audio aspect of this, Reggie. It's, it's one thing to say I never really said that, but uh, it's it's on tape right now. It is, and you're still getting that same kind of uh, pushback that the president didn't say this. Look, it's on tape. We've heard from the horse's mouth the actual comments about coronavirus, uh, the president saying that he wanted to play it down so he didn't build up any kind of threat. Yet you had the press secretary yesterday at the podium in the White House saying that the president never downplayed this crisis once. So, again, it is a war of words that's happening within the own administration right now uh, as they really try to do a cleanup on what the president said and what he didn't come forward to say. But I think what's more important to look at here is the president said he downplayed it because he didn't want to kind of create some kind of uh, uh, crisis or panic in the country when that's been his M.O. for the last three months or so is building up fear and panic within his base, particularly when it comes to white Americans in the suburbs. Well, exactly, and uh, you know, probably even beyond the, the last couple of months, Reggie. I mean, remember the midterms a couple of years ago, uh, the story about the caravans that were coming up from the south, from Mexico and from Honduras, and they were going to ravage the country, etc. It never happened, of course, because it didn't exist. But uh, he relishes in that kind of behavior. Exactly, and he's now trying to find a way to walk back why he didn't come forward with those comments. And while there is criticism for the president for staying quiet, at least publicly, over the last several months, there is criticism that's also being directed towards someone like Mike Pence, who heads up the coronavirus task force, who had the same information, who very likely knew about this behind closed doors and was saying the same things as the president, but again was publicly uh, misleading Americans uh, when it came to the severity of the crisis, but also how the president was dealing with the situation. And I think that these are criticisms that are now going to not just be a part of the 24-hour news cycle and be gone the next day. These are now going to linger on, especially as the death toll in this country very quickly approaches 200,000. Uh, notwithstanding the, the severity of the of the, the audio that we've heard, but uh, there's a lot more to this book, as, as we're finding out, uh, including a typical Bob Woodward, I guess, Reggie, with some of the stuff he's written in the past, uh, some rather damning comments from some of the staff, including at, uh, Dr. Tony Fauci, who I think has quoted, and I'll paraphrase this, that, uh, that Donald Trump had the attention span in negative numbers, didn't pay attention, wasn't uh, cluing in, wasn't following what was going on at whatever briefings that were there. I mean, that that's, that's something that people are going to have to digest as well. Yeah, I mean, look, it paints a damning picture of what the relationship between the two men was and why it's kind of gone on such a public sphere, uh, this kind of back and forth that the president and Dr. Fauci had. But what it also does is concern, it rather uh, confirms uh, the fear from the president's critics 
uh, who said that he was simply more interested in re-election than he was in any kind of leadership. And the book quotes Dr. Anthony Fauci as saying that leadership under President Donald Trump uh, was, quote unquote, rudderless. And I think that these are going to be the comments that really echo down the line. But you're right in that this book quotes a number of senior sources with inside the administration as painting a negative picture about Donald Trump. And it goes far beyond coronavirus, whether or not it's his ability to become uh, to be uh, the commander in chief or whether it's comments about uh, North Korea or even about uh, uh, racial tensions in this country. Like I said, this is going to be something that simply doesn't fade away over the next couple of hours and days. These are going to be comments that the president made on the record and people have said about the president that are really going to dog him through the campaign. Well, I mean, five days ago, Reggie, you and I were talking about his comments about the military and, you know, the suckers and losers, etc. And I know that the Trump administration wanted to see that pushed off the front pages. Well, it has been, uh, but for all the wrong reasons. We're back to COVID again, which is the one thing I don't think Trump wants to have uh, a discussion about when it comes to, to the upcoming presidential election. No, and especially considering yesterday at the White House when he was making this announcement about Supreme Court nominees, or at least a list of them, uh, when he was approached with questions about coronavirus, he went again, doubled down on his administration's response, talking about his uh, his kind of efforts at the beginning to block Chinese travel into America, which wasn't really uh, exactly what the president says, and that he, you know, at the very beginning was buying up uh, uh, PPE and, and kind of uh, ventilators, when we also know that that simply wasn't true, because there was a diminished stockpile uh, within Federal Reserves. So the president really is using revisionist history right now because he understands this close to an election with this many people dead in this country and things continuing to get worse and not better. Uh, he really needs to be able to make the words that he said come across in a better light. This is no longer about trying to lure in new voters. It's simply trying to reassure that base that everything is okay. Reggie, we'll be looking forward to you reporting on this on Global News over the next little while. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, of course, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News uh, based in Washington. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. About a week or so ago that we had Dr. Mark Lobon from McMaster University, uh, who's, of course, a world-renowned uh, specialist when it comes to uh, pandemics and about uh, vaccines. Uh, he's been involved in influenza research for many, many years, and uh, he was hooking up, as, as he told us in the program, uh, with the study that was going on at Oxford University, along with the AstraZeneca people, about developing a vaccine for COVID. Well, that was put on hold yesterday, to the surprise of an awful lot of people, because uh, of some of the results that they saw in Phase 3 of the testing. So what does that mean for that particular project? What does it mean about going forward with a vaccine? I'm going to handle this from a couple of different angles. Uh, to begin with, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Isaac Bogosh, a staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious disease, disease rather, professor at the University of Toronto. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Uh, good oh, to have you pleasure. back with us again. Uh, how was, what was your reaction, doctor, when you heard the news that, uh, that the vaccine push was being put on hold by Oxford? Yeah, I mean, I've I, I had a, a few things going through my mind at the same time. One is, you know, quite frankly, I was a bit disappointed. I, you, we all want this to work. Everyone's been dealing with this pandemic for so long, and we're, we all want wins and successes. And this is one of the front-runner vaccines in the development. And when you hear that there's a hiccup, you sort of your heart sinks a little bit. So that's one thing. On the other hand, too, when I sort of look at it from a very objective standpoint, that's why phase three trials are done. This is the appropriate conduct. Uh, the appropriate conduct of a phase three clinical trial. They're really meant to determine if these vaccines are safe and if they work. And it's not uncommon for trials to stop uh, or push pause to look into adverse events and to investigate it to see if this is related to the drug or the vaccine or not and if they should continue. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We don't know just yet. We'll hear more. 
uh, and I'll just wait for them to conduct their investigation. But obviously, like everyone else, I hope this is not related to the vaccine and that they can continue with their study um, and that we have a, a good vaccine at the end of it. Well, exactly, and I'm glad you brought that up about the efficacy of, of phase three in particular. I mean, there are three phases, as, as we've all come to learn now, and you've explained it to us on the program in the past. Uh, but phase three is the big one. That's that's the mass testing that's done. Uh, and uh, and it, it explains that you can't skip a step here, can you, doctor, because you just don't know what's going to happen and what the ramifications of that could be. Home run, home run, home run. The phase three clinical studies are so important. You can't just have your early phases and then jump to community implementation. These are the studies that will enroll thousands and thousands and thousands of people to see if the drug really or the vaccine or the drug really works and to see what this what their side effects are, including possible rare manifestations that you won't know if you only if you if you skip this step. Um, we've heard of uh, um, Russia. Uh, skipping this step and starting community vaccine programs without finishing phase three trials. We've heard of uh, limited but some use of vaccines in China that haven't completed phase three trials. They're using it in uh, their army, for example. And like, it's, I don't know. I mean, I do know it's not, it's not, it's not a reasonable thing to do. You really need to have the phase three clinical data to make meaningful decisions on whether or not this is a safe and effective drug. One other point here is that even if you have the phase three clinical data, what we do in Canada and what's done in many other parts of the world is you have an independent body. We have Health Canada that is free of government pressure uh, to to pour over the data to determine if this is meaningful, if this is safe and this is effective. So no political pressure, uh, independent bodies to evaluate the phase three clinical data and all the other data available to determine if this is something that's worthwhile to use in Canada. So every step, including that regulatory step, is extremely important. I'm glad you brought up the example of Russia and China because we've heard anecdotally that, as you say, they've already they've ignored stage three and they're simply saying, you know, the mass inoculation is going to be our stage three. We, we'll, because they're not forthcoming with information, doctor, we'll never know if they had blips like this one that that AstraZeneca has run across. Uh, it may be happening, it may not. We just don't know. Uh, but thank God we've got people here that are smart enough and, and responsible enough to say, wait a second, whoa, time out here. Let's see what's going on. Yeah, this is how you conduct a phase three clinical trial. Like this is the appropriate conduct. And while, yeah, of course, we're all disappointed. We all want this to go through smoothly and we all want a, a safe and effective vaccine. Look, what if it isn't? You know, better you know now before you uh, start a mass vaccine program for millions and millions of people worldwide. The other thing, too, is let's, let's think about here's a hypothetical situation. Like this may not come to be, but here's a hypothetical situation. Well, let's say that this vaccine is a dud. Let's say that. You know, the side effects are too great that we're gonna, that this is just not going to continue. You know, OK, we'd be disappointed. Everyone would be. But you know what? There are right now over 40 vaccines that are in human clinical trials. There's about eight of them which are currently in phase three clinical trials. And there's about 180 others that are in the pipeline. So, you know, we know many. In fact, most of these vaccines aren't going to make it to market. We know failure is common in drug and vaccine development and that's why there's so many other vaccines in development taking similar and vastly different approaches because many of them will have bumps along the way and won't make it to market i hope this is not one of them it might be one of them but if it is one of them there's a lot of, of others in the pipeline 
Well, you reminded us a couple of months ago when this whole discussion started about uh, the attempt to find a vaccine. Uh, we thought we had a vaccine for AIDS a few years ago, too, but uh, it turned out that through these trials, no, it didn't work. As a matter of fact, some people died as a result of, of some of the after effects. So, I mean, we, we have to tread cautiously here, don't we? Oh, 100%, 100%. And that's why, as you point out earlier, and I completely agree, you just can't skip steps. There's no shortcuts. You can do good science and you can do it in a very expedited manner, but you can't take shortcuts. And, you know, obviously, when we hear that there was a, a possible side effect related to the vaccine in the Oxford study, you know, the world sort of took a collective, oh, God, you know, but 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 that's okay. I mean, it's, I think it's totally okay to be disappointed. I think it's also important to acknowledge that this is the appropriate conduct of a phase three clinical trial. This is a phase three clinical trial doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. Even to get into the nuance a little bit, there's something called a data safety monitoring board, a DSMB, data safety monitoring board, that is independent of the study team that will look at and investigate all of these events. So, you know, that's that's just what it, that's how these are designed. And it's a smart design to really ensure the safety of everyone in the trial. And of course, to ensure that if this is approved, that when it is launched at a community and national and international level, that we know what we're getting. Has the decision by AstraZeneca to put this on hold right now brought us back down to earth, doctor? I mean, there was some expectation and part of it was fueled, obviously, by some of the comments from people like Trump that said, oh, there'll be a vaccine by October. Uh, to say, well, no, it's it's not that happy. You don't snap your fingers and have this happening. I saw Dr. Fauci's comments yesterday, too, down in the States, essentially saying this just kind of shows us that it's going to be at least springtime, at least springtime, before we can even anticipate having a vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, to, listen, in all fairness, I was cautiously optimistic. And it, quite frankly, if, I know there's a lot of ifs, but, like, if this clinical trial went forward and this was a successful and an and, and effective and a safe vaccine, I I didn't think it would be outlandish that needles could be going in arms in the 2020 calendar year for vaccine programs. Um, you know, maybe this will happen. Maybe this won't. I have no idea. Uh, we have to let the independent uh, data safety monitoring board and the clinicians and the scientists pour over the data here to see if this vaccine will continue. And if they decide that it's not worth continuing, okay, then then that's that then that's the astrazeneca oxford vaccine and and you know you close the door on that but luckily there's like dozens and dozens more uh that are not too far behind in the pipeline and you know what quite frankly if we have to wait another month or two for another vaccine to uh to roll out but we can be more certain over the safety and the efficacy of that vaccine i'm all for it i mean obviously it stinks to live in the COVID 19 era uh, and, and it, you know, it stinks that there's, uh, you know, economies that are broken and families that are broken and, and health and all these other negative impacts. But if it, if it means if, if 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 it's just a matter of waiting for another few months until we have a, another successful vaccine, I think uh, I think that's a, certainly worth the wait. Doctor, give us a little inside baseball uh, stuff here. Uh, when something like this happens, uh, what what does well Oxford or, or in this case AstraZeneca as well? What do they do? How do they explore this? And what, you know, they've hit the pause button, but to do what? So now what they're going to do is they're going to have an independent team look at all the data. So they're going to look at what the adverse outcome was. This is something we're told it's something called transverse myelitis. That's an inflammatory condition of the spinal cord. There's a bunch of reasons why this can happen 
It's extremely rare. Uh, it can happen as a result of infection. It can happen as a result of you know a number of other reasons. And there's been rare but you know, potential uh, vaccine uh, causes of this. And when I say rare, I mean like really, really rare. Uh, but they're going to explore the other possible causes of transverse myelitis in this person. They're going to explore the vaccine. They're going to probably do some diagnostic tests. They're probably going to evaluate the uh, the uh, cerebrospinal fluid on this individual. They're really going to take every step necessary to determine if this was causally related to the vaccine or not. And based on this investigation, this independent board, so these are people that have no, they have no vested interest in this vaccine going forward or not. This is a completely independent board, uh, not related to the company, not related to the Oxford trial, uh, the Oxford uh, uh, group that developed the vaccine, a totally independent group. Uh, will evaluate the data and either give it a thumbs up that it's safe to restart the trial or give it the thumbs down and say, you know what, it's, we don't think it's safe to continue. Uh, and, and obviously I would think uh, of this study group looking for others to see if there's any, any this is only one individual so far, and hopefully it is only going to be one individual. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think they've been pretty transparent throughout the throughout the study and, and most teams if you're doing this right you are you have to be transparent uh, about this and uh, um, you know it's kind of interesting you don't you don't have to hear about uh, you know narratives of pharmaceutical companies and pharmaceutical giants uh, saying you know what hey we, we really want to conduct ethical we, we, you know we're in this you know we're uh, talking about ethical practice and pumping the brakes on things and listen I'm not here to vilify anyone or any teams but but it was very interesting that uh, it was a day or two ago, I think it was eight or nine of the big pharmaceutical companies that are helping produce COVID-19 vaccines basically came out with a joint statement saying they're not going to rush this. They, they are yeah. going to get it right. They're going to take the appropriate steps. They're not going to cut corners. They're not going to bend to political pressure. And they're not even going to submit their vaccines to be uh, evaluated by go- independent government bodies uh, until they're happy with the product for fear that there may be political inter- uh, interference to perhaps rapidly accept something that might not pass the safety test. So they are going to be extremely careful about the vaccines that they put forward, and it's, it's wonderful to hear that. Doctor, always reassuring after we have these conversations about exactly what's going on and the uh, ramifications of it. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, of course, from the University of Toronto, uh, infectious disease professor also at the uh, University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.